I don't have a uh, I don't have a television show that I'm really committed to right now. Some of y'all maybe could give me one that I ought to watch. But uh, several years ago, I had probably the last show that I was really hooked on was a show called Lost. Some of y'all maybe watched Lost, um, in the you know maybe I think it finished maybe seven years ago or so. The basic premise was there was a group of people who survived a plane crash on a remote island that they assumed was uh, deserted only to find out that the island contained a lot of mysteries, a lot, and that was the whole premise of the six or seven seasons of the show was the, the, the mystery of the island. And I can remember the moment that I really got hooked into that show. It was toward the end of the first season. There was a man on the show that discovered a large hatch where the door had been bolted shut on this remote island, and he becomes convinced inside that hatch is the key to all the mysteries of the island. And so he's trying to figure out how to get that door open, and there's this great conflict that develops between the characters there, until finally he's able to blow the door open by force, and at the very end of season one, he and the other main character are peering down into the hatch, uncertain of what they're going to find, and then the credits roll. And, And I had to wait like six, seven, eight months until the next season to find out what was down there. Oh, I was totally hooked. And it was, for me, it was this amazing cliffhanger. And a lot of movies and shows utilize the cliffhanger, right? Because there's something about us that we're desperate to know the mystery, right? What is it that's behind the curtain? Uh, what is it that's coming that, that's, that's just somehow beyond my grasp or beyond my understanding? It really taps into something that's true of the human heart, isn't it? That we love, we wish we could know the future. We wish we could know the things that, uh, that are just beyond our understanding. Raise your hand real quick if you have questions that you plan to ask God whenever you get to heaven. Okay, I know a lot of us do. M- things we can't understand, things we wish we knew. Oh, when I get to heaven, maybe I'll, I'll be able to ask God. He, he can tell me, right? That's just something fundamental to the human heart that we desire to know, to see, to experience. Things that are just beyond our grasp. We, we, we have these cliffhanger things in life that we just want to know. Now, if we're not careful, we can develop an unfulfilled heart, that there's always more to know, more to experience beyond me, right? and that can actually bring us a lot of pain and trouble if we're not careful. But I, I'm interested in what we've been studying these past two weeks, because it's, it's given me a real sense of tension in this way, almost a cliffhanger kind of thing. First Peter chapter 1 has told us some wonderful truths, but they're, there's, they're not quite complete in some sense. So if you weren't here, I'll tell you, two weeks ago, we looked at the first five verses of chapter one, where Peter tells us we have an amazing inheritance in Christ, an inheritance. But Peter says it's reserved in heaven for you. It's not fully realized yet. It will not be until one day future. Then last week, we looked at verses six through nine, where Peter tells us that we have an, an inexpressible joy. But it's a joy that comes in the midst of suffering, of trial, and of pain and difficulty. And so it's a joy that in some sense feels, it can feel tainted because we, we apprehend that joy in the midst of very difficult trials. And for Peter's audience, uh, the early Christians in the Roman Empire who were suffering under great persecution for their faith, it's possible at least that even in the midst of these wonderful truths that Peter is upholding for us, that they might wonder if their hope is really legitimate. Is this worth holding on to and fighting for, fighting through the circumstances of life for the things that are just beyond our grasp? See the tension in that? 
But what Peter's going to show us today is that even in that tension, even in that sense of some things are already, but some things are not yet, Peter's going to show us today that we are the most privileged people who have ever lived. Things are not perfect. This world is not what it ought to be, sure. But Peter's going to show us that we have the highest privilege of any people who have ever walked the face of this earth, more than what we probably recognize or can even imagine. And he's going to show us how. This is 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 12. Uh, We're only going to look at three verses today, okay? Um, But very, very rich. What Blake just read for us, I'll repeat here. 1 Peter 1, 10. He says, as to this salvation, as to what we've been studying, verses 1 through 9, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he, the Spirit, predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Uh, Right here, Peter's talking about our present salvation, but to do that, he's taking us back into the past. He's taking us back to the time of the Old Testament prophets. These were the men who prophesied, who foretold for the people of Israel, written in the Bible now, they foretold of the coming Messiah, the coming Savior, centuries before it happened. One of the most amazing things about the Christian faith is the fact that Jesus Christ fulfilled so much prophecy, that which was predicted hundreds and and even thousands of years prior to his coming. That's what Peter talks about here with the Old Testament prophets. And he says, these men... At their time, in their day, they made careful searches and inquiries. They poured over God's words. They diligently studied to know uh, the, the promises that God was making as to what they were and when they would take place and even how. And on one hand, this speaks to the character of the prophets. Um, you know, we live in a, in a context now where anybody and everybody can have a voice through the media, through social media. Anybody can say anything and potentially get a platform, okay? It hasn't always been that way. And in fact, in in, in Old Testament times, I'll talk about this more in a minute, these prophets, these were not uh, fly-by-night charlatans who kind of walked around saying whatever came to their mind to get an audience. These were men of God who brought the words of God and who were diligent to know that what they were saying was true. There's a character about these men that Peter's pointing out here that they poured over uh, what God was telling them because they wanted to know it. Okay? So their character, Peter is affirming here, but he's also saying something, at least subtly, he's telling us something about the Bible. Uh, if, you, if you're holding a physical Bible in your hand or the Bible on your phone, you know, we can be tempted, and certainly our culture often kind of throws grenades at the Bible to say, well, you know, it's just written by men. Uh, you know, it was written so long ago, how can we know it's true? It's so archaic, it's full of this and that or whatever, and our, you know, our culture will push back against our conviction that the, the Bible is truthful and valid in what it says. But Peter is making an interesting statement here about the validity of the Bible. He's using the prophets as the example, but I want you to think about this. Back in Deuteronomy 18, you don't need to turn there, but the the, the test for a prophet was given to the people of Israel. And in Deuteronomy, it was a very simple test, that if a man claiming to be a prophet of God shows up unauthorized, meaning what he says contradicts the words of God that have already been revealed, then you should put him to death. Pretty simple test, okay? If he, if he comes with falsehood, if he comes uh, peddling, if he comes looking for money for his, in exchange for his prophecies or whatever, kill him. 
be done with him. All right? He's a false prophet. Also, if something he says does not come true, if he foretells something that doesn't actually happen, then you discredit him. You cast him out. He's illegitimate. Okay? It was a very simple test. And so we understand when, when Peter talks about the prophets, okay, and, and very broadly he's talking about a good portion of the Old Testament, right? not just specific men, but what we call the Old Testament, basically the law and the prophets, right? the bulk of what makes up the Bible. He says, listen, this, these writings are not haphazard. They're not disingenuous. They're not, these prophets weren't throwing stuff against the wall to see what would stick because the test for their legitimacy was very strict. Okay, And so the, with the Bible that you hold in your hand, the old myth of perhaps popular culture or liberal thinking says, uh, you know, we just have copies of copies of copies of copies. It's been changed a million times. You can't trust what's in your hands. That's, that's an old myth. That's not true. We have an amazingly accurate uh, copy of what was originally written by these prophets, and their prophecies have been upheld. They've been tested throughout the centuries as legitimate, okay? I want you to feel confident in that. Um, but even more important than that, even more important than just the physical legitimacy of the words on the page, look, look again at verse 11. Peter says, they, the prophets, were seeking to know the details, the time and the place, that the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Peter says, who is predicting these things? The Spirit of Christ in them is predicting what's going to happen. That's what they're recording in the, in the book that we now hold in our hands. So to be a prophet means you have a word direct from God. You are not spouting off your feelings, your opinions, your own judgments. You are speaking as a prophet what God himself has put in you to say. And so there is, in essence, God's, God's speaking his own words directly through these men. That means these words are divine words. They're not just accurate words handed down through the centuries. These are divine words. These are God's words, and this is a divine book that we hold in our hands. Um, incidentally, if I ever stand up here at Harvest Church and claim to have a fresh new word from God that's not in the Bible, you have permission to leave, okay? You have permission to leave anyway. We didn't lock the doors from the outside today, all right, but you have permission to... I'm not a prophet. I don't get a special word from God beyond what he's written in his word already. What we have in the Bible is sufficient, okay? We don't need anything new. There is nothing new. In fact, Peter wrote in Second Peter, the very next letter that he wrote, he says this in chapter 1, No prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That's the essence of prophecy, okay? That's why we can trust what's in the Bible. That's why we can trust what was foretold of Christ even hundreds and thousands of years before it came to bear. And so Peter says the Spirit of God was moving through these Old Testament heroes to give them a glimpse into the sufferings of Christ, his death, and the glories to follow, Peter says, which means his resurrection, the salvation of sinners, the glories that followed the death of the Christ. Okay, now why is Peter telling us this? Why does, why, why does he take a break from these lofty ideas, verses 1 through 9, to now start talking about the Old Testament prophets? He wants us to know, one, that the, the prophecy was divine, which means we can count on it, that we can trust what we see. But he also wants us to recognize the nature of the prophets, that they had a longing and a yearning for something 
that they did not see fulfilled in their lifetime. Peter is trying to show his present readers, even though they're going through a great deal of suffering, that they have a unique and privileged place in God's history, in the way that God has mapped out his timeline of things, that the, the prophets saw forth, they spoke forth that which was to come, but they themselves did not experience it on this side of heaven. And don't you think they wanted to? I mean, don't you think that as Isaiah wrote down Isaiah 53, 54, 55, these wonderful truths of the suffering servant, the one who would come and be crushed for our iniquities, and by his wounds we would be healed. As Isaiah is recording those words from God, don't you think he was hopeful that he would get to see it, that it would come in his lifetime, or that David, when David wrote Psalm 2 about the Lord's anointed one, that he might get to see that come to fruit where the Lord would make his enemies a footstool for his feet. But they didn't. And Peter's trying to show us that there was a yearning, there was a longing in these prophets that they knew someone someday is going to come and break the chains of sin. Someone is going to come and redeem God's people. Someone is going to be forevermore the source of all their hope and all their delight and all of their ambitions were going to be centered on this one person, but they never got to meet him. We, we sing a song about this at Christmas time. We ought to sing it not just at Christmas we say, long lay the world in sin and error, pining. That word, pining. Long lay the world, longing for rescue, longing for hope, longing for light in the darkness, till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. But he didn't appear in the lifetime of these prophets. And Peter wants us to understand their unique role as it now pertains to our unique position in the future, from the prophet's perspective, we're now living in their future that they hope to see, that they wrote about. That's us. We live in the fulfillment of that. So they yearn for a grace that they could only see from afar, right? And why did they do that? Peter tells us, verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. In these things which now have been announced to you, through those who preach the gospel to you. And so the prophets recognized, they came to understand that their hope, their hope would be deferred. That their hope, wonderful as it was, they weren't going to experience the fulfillment of it on this side of heaven. The Savior was yet to come. The fullness of God's promise was yet to be revealed. And so the prophets were not serving themselves or their own generation merely. They were serving us. Every time you open up to Isaiah, every time you open up to uh, Genesis 3, where Moses records what God said about the seed of the woman crushing the serpent's head. Every time we open up to the prophecy of Scripture, we are being served. We are being blessed. Not something that they saw, but something they looked ahead to that now we get to experience the blessing of. Now, do we feel sorry for them? We shouldn't feel sorry for the prophets. Um, Hebrews 11 talks about the great people of faith in the Old Testament that they died in faith, not receiving the promises, Hebrews says, but they welcomed them from afar. That means that they are in heaven, that they by faith have received the grace of Jesus um, on the other side of things, whereas they didn't receive it in full when they lived on the earth. So these men are, uh, if, to use language like this, they, they spent their lives building a bridge that they never got to cross that only beyond death they've got now to experience the grace of Jesus. 
in its fullness. But that bridge was for us. They didn't cross the bridge they built, but we get to now. A bridge that we did not build, but we get to cross. Uh, Some of y'all know this about me, that I played football at Mississippi State University. I don't talk about that a whole lot because when I was there in the early 2000s, we were absolutely terrible. And I was one of the main reasons that we were terrible. It's not really much worth talking about. But when my, right before my senior year, we got a new coach named Sylvester Croom. Some of y'all remember this, back in 2003. And Coach Croom came in with not a very inspiring message, honestly. He, he got the seniors and the juniors together, the upperclassmen, and basically he said, y'all, we're not very good, but if you will stick to it, if you will put your nose down and work and be a leader and help build a solid foundation, then your, the, the rewards of what you put in now will be experienced later. You will build the bridge that guys after you will be able to cross. We will win one of these days, if not immediately. Right? wasn't a very inspiring message, but it was, it was at least believable. And so my senior year, we went out, we played our best, we went three and nine. And after, that, after the Egg Bowl that year, I never played another down. I never put the uniform on again after that day in 2004. Well, in 2007... After, I think, seven or eight straight years of no bowl games, in 2007, Mississippi State made a bowl game. They went, they went eight and five. They won the Liberty Bowl that year. We finally had something to cheer for, something to be excited about. And a few months after that Liberty Bowl, April of, of 2008, I got a package in the mail. Uh, it was, a, it was a, a letter from Sylvester Croom that said, in effect, I promised that we would not forget what you helped build. And in that package with that letter was a genuine Liberty Bowl watch that the players got who won the bowl game that year. It was pretty cool. Uh, I was going to wear it, but it doesn't fit. It's sitting in the sock drawer. Um, but it's pristine. I haven't, I've actually never worn it because I didn't earn it. you know. But here, the thing is, what Coach Croom wanted me to understand and us for, to understand is we didn't win in the moment. We played for a losing team that day, but we helped build something that one day would be fruitful, right? These prophets that Peter's talking about, they, they did not enjoy lavish and, and happy lives on this earth. They were actually maligned, mocked, spit on, rejected by their own people simply for telling them the truth. The prophets were persecuted at every turn for what they were saying concerning the coming Messiah. They were, they were playing, in essence, for a losing team, and yet they did it, Peter says, to serve you. Because you now live in the time of fulfillment. What they saw only from afar, we now get to live in as, as if it's not a long way off, but as if we actually stand on the other side of it. In time and place, the Savior has come. He lived, he died, he rose again from the grave, and we now live in the most unique and wonderful time of human history where it's already happened and we can now live out that grace today. Peter says, the prophets have served you. They longed to see what you now experience. Jesus actually said this to his own disciples. In Matthew 13, Jesus said, blessed are your eyes, his disciples, because they see. And blessed are your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. We are truly blessed. But it gets even better than that. Peter says it gets better. Look again at verse 12, the last verse we're looking at today. It was revealed to the prophets, Peter says, that they were not serving themselves, but you, in these things which now have been announced to you through those who have preached the gospel to you 
by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Those, what Peter's saying, those people who now preach the gospel, even today, we are simply proclaiming the fulfillment of what the Old Testament prophets said would take place. In Acts chapter 26, the apostle Paul was put on trial by uh, uh, the angry Jewish leaders who hated what he was doing, hated what he was saying. And Paul stands up in Acts 26 and he says, uh, I'm going to quote him, he says, I am stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place. Paul's saying, I'm not, I'm not t- teaching anything new. I'm simply teaching the fulfillment of what the Bible says was going to happen, that it has been fulfilled, right? Um, but here's what I really want us to say. At the end of verse 12, Peter says, the things which have been proclaimed to us concerning Jesus' death and resurrection and our salvation, he says, things into which angels long to look. That little statement is one of the hidden gems of the whole Bible to me. You know, Peter's just told us that the heroes of the Old Testament, um, it's like they craned their necks to see into the future, to know what it would be like to witness the salvation of God's people, right? They had to view it, in in a sense, from afar. They had to crane their necks for what they couldn't fully see and experience. And now Peter tells us that the angels in heaven do the same thing in their own unique way. It's almost like the angels in heaven are peering over the balconies of heaven to catch a glimpse into God's salvation of sinners. That the angels long to gaze into the things that we have been given in Christ. Now, what sense does that make? I mean, I think about this, that the angels, okay, they've known God a long time, all right? They've known God a lot longer and a lot more intimately, I'm sure, than than we have. They reside in heaven with him, meaning they are always in God's presence. They're always privy to his glory and his majesty and his wisdom and everything else, right? And yet Peter says they just can't help but stoop from heaven to catch a glimpse, to gaze into the saving work of God towards sinners like you and me. Why is that? Because it's an experience that the angels will never know. Angels are not sinful people like us, and therefore they cannot be forgiven of sin. They cannot be redeemed in the way that we have. They don't know the grace of forgiveness in the way that you and I know it. One of the old commentators said, the angels are not participants in salvation. They are spectators of salvation. They get to watch this thing unfold, but they don't get to be a part of it in the same way that we are. And so if I asked you, I mean, just, just where you sit, if I said, who has it better, the angels or us? I mean, that might be for all of us a, a, a no-brainer, an easy answer. Of course, the angels have it better, right? Having never sinned, the angels have it better that they don't live on this dark, ugly, sinful, backward, broken world like we do. But Peter says there's something about us, something about what we've experienced in Christ that the angels cannot know in the same way, and they just long to get a look at it. They don't know what it is to feel Redeemed. They don't know what it is to be brought from spiritual death into new life, to be baptized, to, get, to be given a heart that's been transformed by grace. That's something that's unique to us that no other beings know about. And so even from their privileged place in heaven, Peter says, they long to look into these things. They can't get enough. Now, why am I spending a whole sermon on these three verses? 
One of the reasons we teach what's called expository preaching, where we go verse by verse through books of the Bible, one of the reasons we do that is because I might not otherwise ever teach these three verses. You know, they're, they're, they're great, but they don't, you know, it's hard to really build a whole sermon around these three things, maybe, for, for a lot of pastors. But I'm glad we get to teach it. And here's, here's the, the encouragement that I take away from, from what we've been studying. I say it's encouraging. It's actually not. But um, why, are we, why are we looking at this so, so intently? Um, let me apply this for us. Most of us have grown up around church and around Christianity to the point that we've come to take it for granted. We've always known it. We've always been around it. Maybe you've, maybe you've just grown up in church your whole life to the point that, we, we frankly, we just kind of take for granted what we have. Um, few of us have ever experienced real persecution and real, like, true suffering on the run for our lives, you know, for our faith. And so it's easy, in that case, for us to develop a sense of false comfort and false entitlement, as if I deserve all the good things I have, because maybe that's really all I've ever known. Um, some of us own like eight Bibles, but we hardly ever read them, and we take it for granted. Uh, most of us have, have true Christian beliefs and convictions, but we're tempted to suppress them for fear of standing out in the crowd or for fear of being rejected by other people, right? And so we don't live as we should because we're afraid. And I'm personally guilty of all these things, by the way. But the Apostle Peter comes along today like a cattle prod for us, for me, to say, you guys don't know how good you've got it. You guys don't realize how great you've got it. You are the envy of Moses and David and Elijah and Isaiah, the prophets who only saw from afar what we now get to experience face-to-face in the real everyday stuff of life, on the other side of the cross, on the other side of redemption, what is ours to enjoy today, Peter says, the prophets could only serve you in anticipation for what was to come. You don't know how good you've got it. And even the angels can't fully fathom and take in the gifts that we've been given. They're constantly looking into it with wonder and awe. They can't get enough of peering into our salvation. Peter says, you don't know how good you've got it. And the challenge that I've come away with in studying this passage, there's this strange phenomenon, and and a lot of it's cultural, but a lot of it's just human nature, because it's in me too, that says, the longer I live as a Christian the less passionate about God I become, the colder my heart grows toward God and His Word, the more comfortable I become in the things of the world, the less I hunger for God and His righteousness. And it should be the exact opposite. You don't know how good you've got it. If we would recognize what the, the, the uniqueness of the grace that we stand in, that we live in every day, we would never take it for granted. And so the truth should be for us that the more we gaze into the truths of our salvation, the more we experience the indwelling work of God's Holy Spirit that we've been given, the more we come to understand the depth of our sin, but also the glory of God's forgiveness and our redemption, the more we live in that, the longer we experience that, that ought to be for us like a bonfire that just keeps getting fed more and more fuel every single day, growing more and more out of control for us. It's never something that should be able to die out or to dim and become cold in me because I get used to it. We should never get used to it. The angels in heaven can't get used to it. 
And yet for me, it's just, what else is new? That should never happen in a heart that's been transformed by the grace of Jesus. We have a grace that the prophets could only hope for and that the angels can only dream about. We are the recipients of God's mercy on the grandest scale, Peter says, and that ought to quicken our heart rate. That ought to stir up our affections. That ought to make us more passionate, not less. It ought to turn our lives upside down. Everything about me, everything about you increasingly should be different day by day, more inclined to the things of God, more in awe of the grace of God, not less. And so this is the challenge for me, and I hope for us, all of us, that if we found ourselves growing cold for any reason, that is not from God. That is the opposite of how we ought to feel if we've been truly gripped by his grace. It changes the way we think. It changes what our heart feels. And we'll see next week that it begins to change how we actually live in our pursuit of God's righteousness. Let's pray. Father, my hope for us today is that we would um, grasp these unique truths. Um, I'm not sure I've ever heard a sermon preached on this text before. And so, um, you know, this is, this is new to me. And uh, I'm astounded by it to think that, Lord, um, the prophets, I mean, these, these are the men that we look up to. And yet, Lord, we're, we're blessed in a way that they, they never knew. Um, we might envy the angels. And yet, Lord, they're, they're longing to gaze into what we get to experience. Father, we don't know how good we've got it. And I pray in my own heart and I pray for us that, that we would be today a people who don't take for granted what we've been given. Maybe it's all we've ever known. It's all we've grown up around. But Lord, would you just show us um, who you really are, what you've really done. That if, if we've built up uh, walls around it, cultural walls or just walls of assumption or walls of entitlement, that, Father, you would break those down today and show us just how truly, uniquely, wonderfully blessed we are to live in the time that we live in, to be born into, if we were born into Christian families, to praise you for that. God, that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. To be born into a country where we're free to worship like this. Father, we are uniquely blessed. And uh, I, I pray, Lord, that, that our, if there's a tension in us, that we, we're, we're grateful for what we have, Lord, but but we're longing to see what's next. We're longing for more somehow. Father, would you, would you show us that, uh, that there's really not more. There's not more you will do for us than what we already have in Christ. We, we have the fullness of your grace. We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ right now. And show us, Father, how good we've got it. That we might return to you a heart of gratitude and a heart that is passionate. A devoted heart, Father that does not grow cooler over time, but hotter. And Lord, that the flames of our ambition to know you more, to please you, to live for you, to make you known, to multiply our faith, that those flames would grow higher with our age. Um, Because the more we come to know you, Father, the more astounded and in awe we are. Thank you, Father. Thank you for the prophets who served us. Lord, thank you for a picture even of the angels who, who, who... long to look into what we get to experience. How awesome. Thank you, Father. And and make our hearts, Lord, to reflect that we really appreciate what we have. 
in Christ. Amen.